Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. In this episode, the American Brown Ale feels almost like a thing of the past. But how can you make this foundational style of American craft beer? I'm sitting down with Wayne Wombles of Cigar City Brewing and talking about the American Brown Ale and lessons learned from the multi-award-winning Maduro Brown and where it both reflects and differs from the nebulous idea of the American Brown style. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Now through August 31st, boost your brewing IQ with a free book when you join or renew your American Homebrewers Association membership. Choose from three books by some of the best brewing educators. Ray Daniels' Designing Great Beers, The Ultimate Guide to Brewing Classic Beer Styles, or from Stan Hieronymus, Brewing Local, American-Grown Beer, or For the Love of Hops, The Practical Guide to Aroma, Bitterness, and the Culture of Hops. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to redeem this limited-time offer. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. All right, welcome back, everybody, and thank you for listening to those ads from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, if you interact with any of them, tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files, so they'll keep giving me money so we can keep doing the show. As you heard in the intro, American Brown Ale, what's happened to it? Where is it gone? What is it? And so I asked recently on Twitter and on Facebook and all the socials out there, like, people tell me, what do you think about when you think about an American Brown Ale? And one of the top answers was Maduro Brown from Cigar City. So to that end, Wayne, say hi. Hey, how's it going? Uh, my dog also said hello. <laughs> so sorry about that. Yeah, everything's going well. Um, yeah, so I think it's I'm just um, really uh, surprised and uh, excited that so many people positively responded to our brown ale, uh, Maduro. So um, super happy to be here, and thank you for uh, thank you for your time and having me. Thank you for coming on. Now it, it is funny because okay, so Cigar City. I, I always think of Cigar City as providing one of the two unofficial craft beers of Florida. For longtime listeners, you know I grew up outside the Orlando area, and forever and a damn day there was no craft beer in Florida. Cigar City provides one of the two uh, unofficial Florida craft beers, which is highlight. 
which I was actually surprised to find out here in California. No. Yeah. Yeah. But we'd been, we'd been in California for a little while. I'd say at least uh, four years. How, how's it drinking? Is it drinking well out there? Yeah, I, I do have to be careful because, of course, grocery stores being grocery stores, you always want to check the date codes. Yep. And as long as I can get it in good time, it tastes just fine. <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. The the other unofficial Florida craft beer that I can't get out here is Reef Donkey. Yeah. That one has not made it out this way. <laughs> and now and none's a really good uh, pale ale. But we are here to talk about brown ale. But first, Wayne, why don't you tell everybody who you are, what you do, and how'd you get started doing it? Obviously, everyone knows my name is Wayne uh, Wombles. I'm the brewmaster for Cigar City Brewing. I was the first employee, so I've been with the company since the very, very beginning. Started in like March of 2008, and at that time, we're brewing pilots on a, a 15 uh, three-tier, 15-gallon homebrew uh, setup that I brought down to Florida. And uh, the odd thing about about it though actually is that the Maduro was one of the beers that was never piloted on that system. Uh, I just felt so confident about it that we actually never piloted that beer. But I started off brewing in 1993, and I started as a home brewer. And um, I have no no formal training, so I didn't go to Seville or UC Davis or any sort of brewing school. Everything that I learned was based upon becoming uh, absolutely obsessed with home brewing, which translated to my first commercial job, which was about three years later. And then I worked in brew pubs around the southeast until around 2008 when I came on at Cigar City Brewing. And that's uh, how I got here. And it's funny to think, so you go from a three-tier, 15-gallon pilot rig to how, how big and how many facilities is Cigar City going out of now? Well, the first system, so I had to translate the 15-gallon to 15-barrel. Um, but now, Brewhouse 2 came online in around around 2011 or 12, and that is a 30-barrel, four-vessel but our beers are also being brewed in Austin, Texas at Oscar Blues in Brevard, North Carolina at Oscar Blues and Longmont, Colorado at Oscar Blues. That's the bulk of, of our production, uh, you know, outside of Tampa. Um, and some of those systems are as, you know, like in the 50 barrel range. Yeah, we've come a long way and uh, it's been uh it's been really cool, and it's also nice to have those those other facilities because we can strategically brew some of these beers closer to the markets we're going to distribute to, which is good for the quality of the beer. And the hopefully by the time it gets to the shelf, it's not you know one or once four to six weeks in, so it gives us I think an advantage, particularly for someone like me who's in LA. So I must be getting my beer from Longmont. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so you said Maduro wasn't one of the ones that was piloted originally. So Maduro started as a 15-barrel batch? Yeah, but you know, a little bit of backstory on that is that um, I, it, I was this, my second brewing job was at Buckhead Brewing Grill in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. And that is where I designed this beer originally. There were some changes that I made to it when I brought it to Cigar City, but it was originally designed to be a traditional English style nut brown ale. And when I brought it to Cigar City, we started using flaked oats in it to try to give uh, more mouthfeel and sort of round out some of the roasted malts. So that was the only thing that I, I really changed about it when I brought the recipe for, you know, back out uh, into the public again at Cigar City. I mean, the fact that it had a brew pub background actually 
doesn't surprise me because I keep looking around. And I kind of think of brown ale as being one of those, you know, older school beers that like you go into a brew pub and they'd have their blonde and their wheat and their pale and probably a brown or maybe a porter. So the fact that it comes from a brew pub background is like, okay, yeah, that tracks. Why do you think brown ale doesn't have a bigger audience? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, people just tend to gravitate towards lighter colored beers. Right now, you know, IPA is king, mm-hmm. and I don't see that changing anytime soon. And I think a lot of breweries now that are distributing are starting to focus their streamlining their their distributed products with the way the economy is heading and, and everything that's going right now, all these different alternatives that beer consumers have available to them is a, a big distraction and it's taking away, I think, from beer sales overall. So as a result of that, a lot of breweries are streamlining what's going to distribution. You know, in some cases, you're not going to see that seasonally again. In other cases, you know, maybe these these projects that some breweries were releasing once every month or once every two months uh, as a special release that goes to distro, you know, that's not happening anymore. Basically, they're taking IRI data, they're looking at it, and they're picking the brands that are doing the best in the market. And then those are the beers that are actually um, you know, being distributed, being produced for distribution. If you want the special stuff nowadays, you got to go directly to the brewery. It's just this kind of weird situation that we're in as an industry. I'd love to see things like uh, German Pilsner on the shelf. But if I want something like that, I have to hope that I you know, get to find it in, in a grocery store. And it's not going to be made in this country. It's going to be a German Pilsner made in Germany and exported. I am definitely, uh, I'd like to see more alternatives, more options on the shelf. But if you love IPA, man, you are in the, you know, like you're in the right country because there's so much IPA on the shelf these days. Right. And I think I saw something, I want to say yesterday as we're taping this, saying that according to the current tracking data, IPA makes up something like 42% of craft beer sales. So Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, but if you look at dark beer, period, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Even my jobs in the 90s, dark, dark beer just doesn't move as fast as, you know, pale ale or, you know, lighter colored lagers or th- it just doesn't move at the same clip. So in a lot of places that I brewed at uh, brew pubs, we would brew half batches because we wanted to turn that volume to get fresh product in tank. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's nothing that's surprising. It's just the way things have been for, for a long time. I can't, I don't, I don't know why I guess maybe dark malts are more challenging for consumers. That's all. That's the only thing I can figure. I think there's also probably still some hangover of that old myth of, oh, well, you know, the dark beer is strong beer. And so you get some people who yeah. are very weird about that. And some people say it's really, it, it drinks heavy, so it makes them feel fuller. But, you know, if you look at, you know, beers like Guinness, it's really, I mean, you're talking about a beer that's 4%. So this 4% beer that's nitrogenated makes you feel fuller. I think a lot of it's psychological. And we know just how much perception plays into how people receive a product like a beer. So, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. But I always kind of think it's a shame because, you know, brown is – I like when when I was getting into craft beer, it was about the same time like you started homebrewing. Like one of the big starter beers at the time was – well, actually two, Pete's Wicked Ale, which is nominally a brown or was. 
RIP to Pete or Pete's working. Pete's still around. Pete's in the chocolate business. <laughs> yeah. Pete's awesome. I, I actually ran into him uh, several years ago at Pints for Prostates. Is I didn't even, I didn't even know who he was. And when I found out, like I immediately had to give him a hug <laughs> because uh, Pete's was such a, a big brand for me in my formative homebrewing years. Um, I grew up in a small town in Southeast Alabama and there just simply weren't a lot of options as far as craft beer was concerned, but you could buy his beers in gas stations um, in the small town that I lived in, which was uh, just, you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, obviously we have better options now in gas stations, but you didn't find things like that very often back then. So yeah, Pete's wicked was a huge inspiration for me. To me, I always think it's a shame because I think, a brown ale is such a warm and welcoming way into beer. Like it's, it doesn't have that dryness that like a Pilsner does or a lager, a lager can. It doesn't have the hop assertiveness that a, an IPA or a pale ale can, but it also has just sort of a warm malt character, which I've, I'm surprised it doesn't appeal to more people, I guess. Yep. And that that's English brown ale. Obviously I would expect more hop character from an American brown ale, but one of the reasons I designed Maduro back in the 90s, it wasn't called Maduro back then, was because I, while I liked the traditional English brown ales um, like Sam Smith's and, uh, and Newcastle, I just felt like they were underwhelming. I felt like more could be d- done with the malt complexity. I felt like it needed to be fuller bodied. I felt like there wasn't enough caramel character. And so I kind of amped it up and made it more of what I wanted it to be with, with Maduro. Kind of thinking broad terms. It's kind of very much in that sort of a, a other way that we've done in American craft beer, which is, you know, I really like that, but more. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You know, American brown ale, <laughs> American pale ale. What does it mean? It means more alcohol and more hops. Stronger and more fuel. Oh. There you go. <laughs> Well, and so let's actually talk about, you kind of mentioned a little bit about what you expect in an American brown ale, but let's really put it out there. When you think American brown ale, what flavors and aroma are you expecting? Right out of the gate. You know, if if it, the first thing, if it's sitting in front of me and I'm at like a JABF table judging or something like that, the first thing that I expect is hop flavor and hop uh, bitterness. And that's one of the things to me that sets this style apart from the other the other brown ale categories um, you know, or English brown ale uh, specifically. I think that there can also be more roast character in, in American brown ale versus English. But I think the primary thing that I'm looking for is more hop character, more flavor hops, more bitterness. When you're thinking about those hops, are you thinking sort of older school American hops then, like, you know, your Cascades and, and your things are kind of more catty and citrusy or piney? I would expect some citrus character. Uh, it's not necessary, though. I think I think English varieties can carry American brown ale as well, too. So I think, you know, East Kent Golding w- would do just fine as long as you got your, your additions where they needed to be. Also, like, woody hops. So I really like hops like Northern Brewer for for American brown ale. Also think uh, Willamette works really well and, and it's also got some woodiness, but it also has some floral character and it also has some spiciness. And I think that works really well too. Woodiness, spiciness, uh, a little bit of citrus works, uh, pine, maybe even a little bit of that evergreen pine. There's a lot of different ways you can go with it. 
Um, there was there's one variety that that uh, I used to use in stouts a lot, and it was it's still around, but it's called Mount Rainier. Mm-hmm. And back in 2000 and I would say between 2007 and 2009, there was a a farmer named John Annan in Oregon, and he was growing Mount Rainier, but his rhizomes became virus ridden. So as a result, the stress that the virus was having the impact on 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 the plants in such a way to where this particular Mount Rainier expressed really high levels of black licorice. So I would use that hop in in beers like this. This would be a, a good beer to use it in to get this black licorice character um, and also use it in the salt. Every once in a while, you'll find stuff like that. Like I love hops that have like licorice characteristics. They're just really, really hard to find or dark fruit notes. It's just a, it's just a matter of like finding them somewhere off in, uh, in the world. And, and then usually when you do find them, they're not, there's not a whole lot of availability, but it, to me, it's worth, it's worth mentioning. It's funny that you mentioned that because we've been talking more, it feels like as an industry, uh, about hop terroir, the impacts of individual farms and individual growing reasons. But I don't think I've ever heard anybody praise the impact of a virus on the plant. Well, that's the only thing it can be. I've had discussions with multiple hop farmers. On average, I visit 15 to 17 hop farms every year. So I've had a lot of inter- interactions with farmers directly. And I've, I've smelled Rainier uh, the way it is now, non, non-virus-ridden mm-hmm. you know, uh, Rainier. And it does not smell like this this hop smell that Annan was growing. So the only thing that I can deduce is that it's it was, it was the virus creating the stress that created the, the you know, like black licorice and yeast character that this particular field was producing as a result in their hop cones. Stress does funny things to plants and makes them taste different. So I, I buy it. It's just kind of like, huh, <laughs> a virus. Okay. Yeah, and yeast too. I mean, in a lot of cases, some cases we want that stress on yeast to be able to produce the things that we want it to produce. You know, when I ask people different candidates for their mind of like what they thought about with American Brown, there were some of the usual suspects in there. Maduro was in there, obviously. Uh, Moose drool, one of the best names, but also kind of horrible to order. Uh, Moose drool brown, uh, Bell, uh, Bell's brown. Then there was also a newcomer to me, which was the uh, civil life out of St. Louis. It also got a lot of votes from people. It was funny that it very quickly conglomed around just a very few number of entries, which I'm not sure... Again, it goes back to some of that thing, thinking about like, you know, how much of like a brew pub origin almost this was. I know when we were initially talking, you told me, oh, well, you know, hey, the, the beer has won a lot of awards. I think you said in Brown Porter. Yep, correct. Yeah, it's it's taken two golds and one bronze at the JBF for uh, Brown Porter category, which is where it fits best, honestly. And then on the website for Cigar City, it's listed as like a Northern English Brown, or not listed, it's described as a Northern English Brown. All of this points to the fact that I think that some of these beer style uh, differentiations are splitting hairs. It's just hard to fit certain things into categories sometimes because the direction that we took with the beer is more aggressive. Um, But it's not hoppy enough to be American brown ale, but it's too roasty to be an an English brown ale. (laughs) So the only place that really fits squarely into is uh, Brown Porter, and that's where it's done well. 
part of the reason why I love some of these things because like one of my favorite models that's produced commercially of the few that there are it really reads more as a small porter than it does a, a mild. So it makes sense. Yeah. You, you'd mentioned, okay, it, a lot of caramel malt character, all this. If you're, if, if you're trying to build something or if somebody at home was trying to build something like a Maduro, what would you suggest in terms of like the malt bill? Uh, so there's different ways you can go with the malt bill. Um, obviously you could, you could use Miras Otter as base. If I did that, I wouldn't use hundred percent Miras. Um, I'd probably cut it in half and blend it with like a Tiro. And, and if you did that, uh, you probably wouldn't need as much, uh, victory or you could probably cut back on, uh, the brown malt a little bit. Mm-hmm. You could reduce toasted malts if you use Miras, but you could pull Miras out completely and use all two and then count on the toasted malts to get that breadiness that you would get from traditional English pale. So that's another route you could go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just speaking about, you know, like, uh, base malt character, uh, medium crystal is, uh, what I would suggest somewhere between 50 and 70, uh, would work well. Also, I prefer chocolate malt and I try to use chocolate malts that ha- have a lower level bond to try to reduce some of the acridity and, uh, Brown malt to me is one of the malts that I like. It's, it's one of those you have to be really careful with. If you use it too much, it can lend to that acridity. And in some situations, I've actually tried growing American brown ales with um, using roasted barley, and that is really, really hard to do. Uh, it's I've I tried it for years, and I would get down to the point where I'd shave it down to like half a percentage. And it, it was almost too much, even at that level. So while roasted barley could be used, uh, I think it has to be used very, very carefully. If it is used, I don't really think that black has a place, black malt. I really don't think it has a place in, in these styles for me personally. I think it's just too much. To your point, they're kind of burnt. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- once again, you're going into that, like that, that acrid sort of character that, th- that it can produce. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that that about covers it. I think that, uh, you know, obviously it's more complex than like, say, a pale ale grist or, or like an IPA grist. But that's one of the reasons that I like it so much, because you can you can shift things around and really get, you know, that chewy caramel character and you can get your your roastiness right. I think chocolate works works really well for that. In the case of Maduro, we also use flaked oats. And part of the reason for that is just to try to round some of the, the roasted malt character, try to like smooth the edges of it. And, and, and it also is a nice uh, enhancement to the mouthfeel. That's roughly what I would suggest for the grist. Let's back up for a second because you'd mentioned being careful with the brown malt. And I kind of have an allergic reaction to brown malt because I had a bad experience using way too much of it in a beer once mm-hmm. and not realizing that uh, vintage brown malt and modern brown malts are different. It's dummy. When you're saying, hey, you want to be careful with it, how much are we talking about here? Like, are we talking like a 10% of the grist, uh, 5%? Oh, God, no. Um, no, I think you're, we're talking about, you know, somewhere between like uh, – Two and five percent. I wouldn't go much past that because then it's going to start pushing pushing you in the wrong direction, and it also starts to eat into the caramel character. 
trading one thing off for another. It, I think it's just there to kind of uh, lend some nuttiness and uh, firm up some of the roasted character, but not make it overly assertive. Well, and to give you an idea, so you can have the same allergic reaction I did, the beer I did was 33% brown malt. And boy, that was a stringent. Oh my God. It was a stringent as that. It's probably awful. Oh yeah. You'd mentioned using the pale chocolate. Like I remember for years, what was it? A Simpsons pale chocolate was, was kind of like my go-to because of the same reasons. I think that you're pointing at good color, good flavor, none of the acridness of like a, of a darker chocolate malt. Yep. But even, even barista has, if you compare the love of bond on, on their chocolate versus English chocolate, mm-hmm. it's lower. I'm not necessarily suggesting go for pale chocolate, but I'm just saying that some monsters produce chocolate at lower love than others. So what about using any of like the dehust or debittered type of uh, chocolate malts? Cause I think it's really hard to use like a black malt in this because of the, the acridness and everybody says, Oh, well, you know, if it's debittered, then it doesn't give that same acrid character. Well, I think that's definitely an option. If, if you can find it, I don't think it was an option for me back in the nineties when I originally designed it. I didn't really think about it back then, but yeah, I'd say, and I haven't done any experimenting with, with dehust. I got to add that to my list of things to explore and brewing, <laughs> but yeah, that sounds like a good option. So that gives us our malt character. When you think about the water with it, I, I know everybody these days is all about the you know chloride to sulfate ratio. Did you do anything with the water for Maduro to enhance malt character or, or push it down? Yeah, I think you want to jack calcium chloride way up. Um, I mean, it all depends on what water you're starting with, but you know, honestly, I like to be at like 200 ppm of chloride. And then I like to keep sulfate down. So I'd probably be around like 100 to 125 on that. Those are, those are the main things that I focus on. Um, I mean, you could get into, you could get into other things too. If you understand how to get calcium carbonate into solution, uh, depending on the amount of roasted malts that you're using or dark malt that you're using, you could use that to actually stabilize the pH, prevent it from dropping down into the high fours. It just all depends on... Yeah, One of the great things about beer, and I've said it for years, is it can be as complicated as you want it to be or as simple as you want it to be. And this is one of those cases, you know. Oh, yeah. How far do you want to take it? Exactly. The HA had their old slogan of, it's not rocket science unless you want it to be. Yep. And for a lot of homebrewers, what we've been recommending, because calcium carbonate is such a a pain in the fatokus to get it to dissolve is looking at using slaked lime to do that same sort of trick as what you're doing with the calcium carbonate to control the pH because slaked lime at least dissolves readily into water. Another thing you can do with calcium carbonate is you can mix it with carbonated water and that helps to break the bond and that makes it easier to actually get it into solution too. So that's a, that's an easy way to do it. We've also played around with mixing it, with water and baking soda. So like you kind of creating carbonated water in a way. Um, and that also helps break that bond. There are other ways to get it in. It's just a matter of knowing the science to get it in. To your point, the CO2 is like the, the go-to solution. But yeah, again, if you either calcium carbonate that you get dissolved or try slaked lime, if listeners are out there and you're playing around with the like brewing water, which is the water calculator of choice, at least for me, it walks you through the stuff about how to use either calcium carbonate or cal as well. 
it's interesting, like looking like in those ranges that you're talking about, like 200 ppm of uh, chloride and that 125 of sulfate. Those seem like much higher levels than a lot of American craft brewers pursue, you know, uh, and, and much more in line with like English. The chloride levels that I like for multi beers are alien, absolutely alien, but um, it's it works. So why not do it? You know, so and if you if you look at Tampa water, Tampa water is a is a challenge because it uh, it has uh, has sulfate levels that we we can't control. So there'll there'll be times when the sulfate levels will be as high as 175 ppm naturally, and we rarely see it below 150. So I think that's one of the things that I had to accept early on as a brewer at, at Cigar City in the beginning. You know, now we are on the verge of finally installing this RO system, so we'll be able to control it more. But in certain situations, the water that I had access to influenced me as well. I'm still over there throwing calcium chloride in because no one I, that I can think of has CD water or water that has 200 ppm of chloride in it. Um, so I'm still having to jack that up. But yeah, uh, Tampa water was a challenge. So. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the RO system because I was just about to ask, do you consider that breweries that have RO systems are kind of cheating? I don't think so. I think they're making things more complicated for themselves. I mean, putting an RO in uh, obviously is beneficial, but you can't use the water that comes out of it. That's not how it works. You're just you're just breaking it down and starting over again. So you have to rebuild it. That is not always an easy thing to do. I mean, you definitely have to know what what your targets are if you're using RO. It's great because you do strip it down to nothing, but it's not usable water. I mean, you've got you've to figure out what you want to do with it first. And not to mention the fact that you just put an extra bit of maintenance on you. Oh, yeah. Uh, RO systems don't just work. Nope. Now, you'd mentioned a whole bunch of hop varieties in there, and I'm skipping over the mash because I assume this is just a single infusion mash. <laughs> yeah, sure. Like a lot of English styles. Yeah. You'd mentioned, okay, all these different hop varieties trending into some of the ones that, that I love. Like, I'm, I'm a big proponent of Willamette. I, I keep thinking that people keep forgetting on about Willamette to go, ooh, look, let's use a sexy Zotz or, or something from Germany. You know, we got perfectly good Willamette over here, people. Yeah, it's, it's a great variety, I think, uh, especially for this style. Um, and it's an interesting plant, too, because it likes to put all the flowers at the top of the plant. <laughs> so when you're walking through a field trying to find a cone to pick, and smell it in the field, you'll see like most of the flowers are at the top of the plant. It's a smart plant. It's basically basically saying, screw you humans. You're not getting my flowers, you know? I'm playing keep away. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's just a great variety. Like I was saying, you know, like that woodiness, um, some spiciness, floral. It's a it's a great hop for this style, in my opinion. And that's one of the, this is one of the varieties that uh, is actually in Maduro. And Northern Brewer is another variety. But that one uh, we just use for base bitter. Right. But even then, uh, as a base bitter, I find that Northern Brewer still communicates that wood and mint. Mm-hmm. Yep. If anybody wants to try uh, try it, go have an anchor steam. You'll totally taste it. Yep. So, like, in your mind with this, like, how many IBUs? If we're, if we're talking American brown, right? Oh, uh, for American brown. Yeah. I want to say 25 to 45, somewhere in there. If I was making... A true American brown ale, and I would say to fine tune it even more, I would say probably like 
35 to 40 would be the pocket I would target personally. Now, Maduro, though, itself is somewhere around like 23. It's leaning more towards that English uh, malt, or sorry, English hop uh, IBU level. And is Maduro, does Maduro come in around like, what, 13, 14 degrees, Plato? Yeah, it's, yeah, the beer's five and a half. So it's uh, yeah, like 13 and a half, somewhere around there, 13 and a half to 14. Right. And so to put that into, into homebrew friendly units, we're talking like in the low to mid 1050 area. Exactly. Like yeah. 1048 to 1055 ish. Yep. And so that gives, that gives you an idea of like, you're not looking for sort of vaunted American IPA sort of, BU's to GU ratio of where it's like one or more than one, you know, you were still below in terms of the amount of IBUs, but we're not as drastically low as you might see in, as your example, like Maduro leaning a little more British. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it needs to be. I mean, for American Brown Ale, I think that while it, there should definitely be that uh, hop flavor and, and hop bitterness, it can't completely overwhelm that the malt complexity, you know, there still should be some caramel expression in my opinion, and there still should be some obvious uh, dark malt expression. Um, and, and it shouldn't come over the top of those things. So that's why it doesn't approximate the same way as American IPA. When you're thinking then of hop additions, are we, I mean, we got our, like a bittering addition and maybe like some late additions for hop aroma, but it sounds like not really any sort of dry hopping. Yeah. I think if you, I think if it were me going for that kind of character in an American brown ale, I think I would probably put it uh, late. So probably like a 15-minute addition. So base bitter, so 60 to 75-minute, and then a 15-minute addition. And then if I wanted to try to get some of that hop aroma to carry, I would probably do a a decent-sized whirlpool charge. And I probably put, let's say, 25% of that whirlpool charge right after cut heat. And then I'd probably put the rest of it somewhere between 185 and 190. So reduce uh, whirlpool temperature and then throw the remaining 75% of the whirlpool charge. And I think that that would probably get, get you in a good place and probably translate to having some hop aroma too without dry hopping. And hopefully without overriding all that subtle, wonderful, nutty malt complexity that you're trying to build in. Yeah. For yeast, I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i done this before with like, you know, just 01, 1056, 05, you know, the, that sort of thing. Would you go for like a very clean American yeast or would you go for something with a little bit more British-y character to it, something that throws a little more fruit ester? So uh, in the very beginning, we were using Tim's Valley and... Well, that's strange. Everything was going really well <laughs> until we realized that we could we could make beer faster than we were making it. Once we started doing that, we quickly realized that it was a it was a yeast strain that wasn't very flocculent, <laughs> and that was not that was not going to work for us because it was just too powdery. Then we went to 1968, and obviously a, a very flocculent yeast and flocks very well and hard. But we were having issues with attenuation. I think 68 is a good yeast for this. You know, like, I think you'd probably want to be careful to try to reduce ethylhexanoate production. So maybe ferment a little bit cooler, say 
65, 66 mm-hmm. instead of 68 plus. We were actually using a 1056 equivalent. That's eventually where we landed. And once we made the transition from 68 to 56, it was significant. And one of the things that uh, I immediately, I, I felt it was an immediate improvement because 56 is more neutral, uh, less ester formation production. And it once those esters were reduced or gone, it really just put the malt on the table for you. Like it, it just really brightened up the, uh, the, the malt character in, in Maduro. So it just depends. It really depends on what you want. Now, like we've mentioned, uh, Maduro leans more towards the English side. If you're talking about American brown ale, I think there's more room for esters because you have more hop presence. And I think that the esters could work well with the increase of hop presence and the American brown ale style. Well, and again, though, as long as you're not overwhelming, I could see where 68 would become too fruity. Yeah, it, it produces a lot of ethyl hexanoate, a lot of it, if you let it get warm. But, I mean, again, you got room to play, but you don't want you don't want the yeast to be the star of the show. Definitely not. And if you want to be more malt-focused, then I like 56, just because it's it's so clean. But if you want more hops, I think you're fine with using something with more ester production. You know, it is a shame that 1275 is so uh, powdery because it makes such a wonderful flavor. I agree. Yep. And we used it for the first two years and it just became so, such a problem that see, in the beginning when we we're making High Life, for instance, we were doing two weeks of dry hop contact. And then over the course of time, we started experimenting and realizing that we didn't need that long, like that, that much uh, dry hop contact time. And when that happened, that's when it was over for Thames Valley. That's when we realized how you know powdery it was. We've been talking a lot on the podcast about how Denny and I have both started to switch over to shorter, colder dry hop times. And, you know, like, yeah, three days maximum. Maximize the extract, minimize any absorption, and go for it. That sounds right. I mean, that sounds like a great commercial. That's, I think that's how a lot of commercial brewers do it these days. Yeah, and it, it makes sense as a technique for reasons of both flavor and expediency. It's one of the few times, I think, in the brewing world where both of those line up. It's just effective, though. I mean, if you think about it, because we were what we were doing to test it was we were pulling samples off the tank every day from day one to day 14 and basically determining at what point is this where it needs to be and at what point are we no longer gaining anything from this. And that's how we you know, settled on dry hop contact time. All right. Well, Wayne, before I let you go forth and enjoy your weekend, any last thoughts on American Brown or what people need to do in order to make great American Brown? I think we've covered uh, a lot of it. You've been really thorough with, uh, the, with the questions. I make a fantastic interrogator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've done really well. Not that I can think of, uh, Drew. I think we've covered everything pretty thoroughly here. Well, there you go. And of course, as always, I mean, like I'm out here in Los Angeles, which means that I'm I'm stuck at the whims of distribution in terms of what I can see. But I've spent, along with my sister and my brother-in-law, uh, many a good time at the uh, the home brewery in Tampa. And of course, you guys have presence now pretty much all around the country, right? Almost. I mean, there. I think we're still not in a few states, but most of the country. And we're also exporting to... Yeah, and that whole exporting thing, that's a whole nother interview. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't it? 
Wayne, thank you for taking the time and I appreciate you dropping some knowledge on us. And I also thank you for making so many wonderful beers. My pleasure. Thank you so much and hope everyone has a great weekend. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of the near-forgotten American Brown. In a world of IPAs, is there any room for a Pete's Wicked or a Moose Drool or a Maduro? If not, then there's always your homebrew kettles to keep your pint glass full of color. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at ESP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the Pongo Fund, running a food bank for pets in need. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. The seltzer sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. Pineapple Sunset.